0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you will, page 8, we're gonna, we've been in this series called Withness. Withness is our witness. And we talked about how it's presence and proximity. We have this scripture in the worship of God every week, and we're going to get back to reading it now. And so if you will... <coughs> Page 8 in your worship guide, if you'll read the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another. I want to say that again. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He'll separate them one nation from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and what? I was thirsty and... I was a stranger and... I was naked and... I was sick and... I was in prison and, well, then the righteous will answer Jesus and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. I assure you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, everybody together, you did to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. They too then will answer, Lord... When do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This morning I want to talk about the witness of grace. But I want to first talk about the withness of grace. See, Jesus is making statements here about what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. That if we follow Jesus, and if we are compelled by grace, then this is the kind of life it produces. A kind of life that feeds those, that offers food to the hungry. Water and drink to the thirsty. Welcome and hospitality to the stranger. Presence to the neighbor that has been deemed disposable, who's been dehumanized and demeaned. That is the witness of grace. Beloved, anytime you see a Christian who wants to demean, dispose, or dehumanize another, you are witnessing a person who does not know grace. Anytime I have been that person, You will have met me in a moment where I have forgotten grace. What Paul does in his letter that he writes to the Ephesians, the Christians who live in Ephesus, which is this metropolitan Greco-Roman city, this hub of a place of commerce and life and cultures, is he reminds them of grace. But to do that, To remind them of where they are, he has to remind them of where they've been. You with me? Sometimes to know how we got to where we are and the beauty and the blessedness of where we are, we have to sometimes remember where we've been. So when you read Paul's letter, he spends the first half of almost all his letters reminding us of who we've been. And it ain't good. But then he pivots and he says, but guess what? But God, everybody say, but God. Some of the best words in scripture, but God, God wasn't going to leave you there. God wasn't going to leave you where you were. He was going to take you to where you need to be. I hear people say to me all the time, Fred, why are you bringing that up again? Fred, why are you talking about that thing again? Because sometimes we have to remember where we've been if we're going to fully grasp and be and bask in the beauty of where we are. If you have never tasted banana pudding, and some beautiful blessing of God comes to you in a plate of banana pudding, and you taste it on vanilla wafers, you will know grace. And if you judge me for making a banana pudding illustration, Sherry, not going to mention any names, then I need to give you grace. Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your scriptures with you, it's going to be on the screen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler, everybody say ruler, the ruler, that language is important, according to the ruler who exercises authority, everybody say authority. Authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, everybody say we means me. We too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Y'all feeling encouraged yet? Now, real quick, some people read the nature we were by nature children under wrath to assume that we were under God's wrath. Beloved, we were never under God's wrath. We're under the wrath of our own sinful ways. We are under the wrath that we've created for ourselves by submitting to the ruler of the authority, which is the reign of sin and death. Are you with me? On the cross, you don't see the wrath of God. You see the love of God. The wrath of God wasn't satisfied. The love of God was magnified. God isn't trying to save you from some form of divine child abuse. He isn't saving you from himself. He is saving me and you from the reign of sin and death that we have been held captive by. And that if we don't find liberation from the God who knows us best and loves us most, we will spin out of control with that reign of sin and death. And that will be our life into our eternity. And what Paul is trying to say is this is where we all were. And we all lived like it. And then he says, but God, everybody say, but God. And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, He's also raised us up, seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Beloved, Christianity calls the relentless giving and self-emptying of God's love grace. Grace is a word that expresses a central understanding to the gospel story. You could say that grace is like this god does for us what we are not able to do for ourselves that is a way to talk about grace now that's the opposite of the american virtue which is god helps those finish it you won't find much more contrary to the conviction of grace god does for us always we cannot do for ourselves. Now, I need three minutes of a nerd moment because too often we miss the, the beauty of grace. In the Greek language of your Bible, the word grace is charis Everybody say charis charis is an expression, a term, a word that was used to describe a Greco-Roman relationship of social standing. So in other words, When you lived in Greco-Roman culture, you needed carus from a patron. There was a patron and a client. It expresses a patron-client relationship. A patron was someone in Greco-Roman culture who had the power, the influence, the might, the authority, the wealth to be able to uphold the society as they wanted it. You feel me? You with me? And that patron had the influence to make it happen. If you were not among the wealthy, influential groups of Greco-Roman culture, then you needed to attach yourself to a patron. And that patron would make sure that you would be able to have the access to the resources you need. Or that patron would make sure that they leveraged their power, privilege, and position for your good. You then became the client. You with me? So when Paul talks about the word charis, he's talking about a patron-client word. So when the Christians in Ephesus hear the word charis or charis, They hear the word grace, they think of patron-client relationship. They think of someone who is of wealth and influence and majesty and power who is favorably disposed toward those in desperate need. Now what your obligation would be as the client is to honor the patron, to pledge a sense of loyalty to the patron. So when you would speak, you would say, I'm here today because of. I want to thank those, I want to thank my patron. You were build a house, you put a memorial plaque and say, This is in honor of my patron. This is how the honor-shame culture of social standing and Greco-Roman culture works. It's very similar to what we find in Kenya. Remember when we were able to create some of those jobs and create the children's home for the 200-plus children who were AIDS orphans who were being abused and abandoned, and we were able to fund that initiative and drill the wells and all the things we were able to do and create those jobs for them. What they wanted to do was name all of that after us. And we were like, no, 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 we don't have to do that. But that was the honorable thing for them to do. So when we built this and they had enough money to build a kindergarten, they wanted to name it, believe it or not, Fred Ligon Kindergarten. And I was like, first off, uh-uh. <laughs> and then what, what Francis B. said, but you don't understand. We have to honor you. I was like, I'm not the one who built it, bro. He said, but well, then we will call it Williamsburg Christian Academy. And I said, there we go. It's the same idea. Patron, client. You with me? So when you hear the word "carus," when you hear the word grace, is it okay to say, yes, God does for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. Yes, that's, that's a fine thing. But I want you to capture the fuller meaning of the context where God is favorably disposed to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. That grace is about a gift. A gift given. And because we have received the gift, we owe the one of grace a response. We can't pay it back. It's not about paying anything back. It's about a response. And the response is gratitude and loyalty. Which in the Greek language is the word pistis. Which translates faith. You have been saved by Karus through pistis. Not of your own works. Lest somebody could boast in themselves. It's a gift of God. So you've been new now. You've been made new. Created. Created anew for something beautiful to live out that grace, good works and to walk in grace. And to demonstrate the grace of God in your life by the grace you give others. We now are made witnesses of grace. See, what happens is we're reminded that our faith never begins with what we do for God, but what God does for us. It's just grace. We do good works not so we can receive God's grace. We do good works because we've received God's grace. Are you with me? The order order matters profoundly. It's just simple, reckless, untamable, unexplainable, relentless, scandalous grace. And it means that all we have is gift. It means that all that is good, that is ours, has come to us not by right or reward, but by grace. All is gift, all is grace. And this kind of grace, this concept of grace, there was a Hebrew word for grace too, this kind of grace is the kind of grace that God calls his people, his Hebrew people, to understand and to receive. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 and 18 look on the screen you may say to yourself my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me but remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm his covenant he swore to your fathers as it is today grace says all that is gift my is the is our favorite word in American culture we love us some my and grace says I want to move you from ownership to stewardship. I want to move you from this kind of gravitas of I am great to a kind of gratitude that is rooted in humility. I want you to see that there's nothing you could have ever done nor ever could do for me to love you any more than I already did before you were even born, and I rescued you from yourself. There is nothing we will ever do that could push us beyond the reach of God's grace. Because even when some of us thought we had wandered too far, God's hand extended to us. And it's like our Lord taught us. This is what it means to receive the kingdom of God as little children. Little children cannot do anything big enough or good enough to earn the kingdom. It only comes by grace. So like a child, beloved, accept the gospel fact that you are accepted and beloved and let that transform you. All God asks of us is to be astonished that the holy God and creator of all came to us in this self-emptying, self-giving love and, and this is how love for God wells up within our heart and soul and mind and strength and cultivates a kind of love that is capable of loving our neighbor as ourselves. That comes as a result of the contemplation of grace. And this withness of grace reminds us that there is no place we will stand that not well, will not be covered in grace. There is no place we will walk that will not be covered in grace. Grace is all around you, above you and within you by the spirit of God within you and there is no place you will walk, there's no word you will say, there's no action you can't do that you will do that will move you outside of God's grace. You must know that. Because when you are covered in grace and you get that, and you do try to move outside God's grace, you know you won't stay long because you can't. Because the love of God compels you to move back to the God who knows you best and loves you most. And there will be no groveling after God that will just be, I'm sorry. And God will look at you and go, I know. If it's me, he goes, "You've been sorry a long time, but I love you anyway." Right? There's a withness of grace, and beloved, because there's a withness of grace, we are called to be witnesses of grace. And so what I want to do is actually get to the text I've been wanting to get to. Yeah, I know, that was the introduction. It wasn't, it wasn't oh, don't even be like, Jim's like, "Oh Lord, we need grace. God, give us grace. I want to begin a text that I want to teach through next week, but I want to begin a text now so you can see what Jesus means when he talks about grace. It's Luke chapter 1, or Luke chapter 14, beginning verse 1. We'll pick up the rest next week, but I want to just illustrate this. The first thing I want us to notice is that the context of this entire story is a context of power. Everybody say power. That is the moment. Look at what the text says. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of one of the, everybody say it with me, leading Pharisees. So Luke doesn't want us to think this is just a political leader, an average political leader, or just another Pharisee. He wants us to know that this is a man who is powerful among the powerful. You with me? Luke wants us to see that. He could have said it any other way, but he didn't. He wants you to know that this is a context of power. Now, We're not going to read the rest of this today, but we're going to move to verse 7. Something happens. Jesus gets a little bit in trouble, stirs the pot, subverts the situation, which is what Jesus often does, and then he offers them a parable as an effort to help them understand what it is they just saw. Verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited. So who's Jesus talking to? The invited ones, the people. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best place for themselves, he said, When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place, because a more distinguished person than you might have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in humiliation, you'll proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up higher. You'll then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus turns from the people to the power. Look at verse 12. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary... When you host a banquet, notice he said banquet, invite those who are, read it with me, poor, crippled, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now I want you to imagine the absurdity of Jesus looking at a man with power and saying you could have you should have invited the people that you would least want to be with I mean can you imagine the absurdity of throwing a banquet and spending all that money on all the fancy goods and all the fancy decorations just to invite someone who was blind Can you imagine setting up all the stations of all the delicate delicacies and all of the foods and all of the drink with all of the pomp and circumstance just to invite people who could not walk from one place to another without being carried by you? That sounds like a lot of trouble to me. And that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to. Because grace doesn't look for payback. Grace doesn't look to be repaid by those who receive the grace. Because those who give the grace have already been paid. You see the text? When it says you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know, repaid assumes that we've already been what? Paid. See, a lot of times what we have to recognize is when we find a church or a people or a person, which includes me, who is unwilling to invite the least last left out and lonely and celebrate their lives by welcoming them into the finest that I offer, what you have found as a person who's still trying to understand the depth of grace. Well, what about? What if they can't? What if they aren't able to? That's just too much trouble and... Grace. It's grace. Because it's all grace. Because who gave me the money to throw that banquet? Who gave me the food to eat? Who gave me the resources to coordinate and organize? And Jesus is asking something very specific. He's saying resist. Resist trying to be with people who are like you. And invite the people to. That you need to know. That you might least expect or want to be with. Because that is how people catch or capture grace. Years ago after God awakened me to the reality of my sin sick heart and my pride. My Christian faith radically shifted when reading the gospels. I discovered this one unalterable truth of the gospel of grace. And that is this, Jesus sat at the table with anyone who wanted to be present. Anyone. And if Jesus sits at the table with anyone who wants to be present, then I will never be allowed to determine who sits at that table. My only responsibility is to learn how to sit with the Christ who is with all of us. And so the problem is a lot of times we'll all be fine sitting at the table until finally we see someone who's at the table that irritates us a little too too much. So it isn't so much that we all have a seat. The question is, will you keep your seat? That's my struggle. Now, there's a danger to this whole conversation about grace. It would be too easy for us to say, well, Fred, come on, man, we, we talk about grace. Well, here's the reality, though. The withness of grace that makes us witnesses of grace should make us more gracious. That is why we should want to do these hard things. And when we don't want to do these hard things, we do them anyway because that's how grace works. The work of God's grace is to make us more gracious. Gracious. But we live in a society where we love to build walls where Jesus tears them down. As a matter of fact, in the same exact text of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Christ came to tear down the walls that we build. Come on now. That has 55 different meanings in 2022 United States of America, doesn't it? And the reality of it is, beloved, when we find ourselves less gracious, we're really finding ourselves missing the beauty of the grace we have received the good news is when we are less gracious god is still gracious we should move us to be you ready gracious <laughs> and that's the cycle we live that's the tensions we hold and a lot of times when we talk about this conversation we all think well this is all basic We've been talking about grace 13 years. Like We've been talking about grace for 62 years. Whatever. We've been ta- I've been learning about grace all my life. Grace is the most basic Christian concept. That it's the most basic thing. But here's the reality. Because I'm a boots on the ground kind of guy. You know this. So before we think about how basic and obvious all this is to our faith, let's remember that the truth of God's grace has always been a truth in Christianity. You with me? So then let me play the role of Paul and take us where we've been. See, the truth of grace existed when Pope Urban II in the 11th century initiated the Crusades and incited what became generations of holy wars. The truth of grace existed when European colonizers in Virginia used the Bible, namely the story of Noah's son, Ham, called it the Hamanic Curse, and then used that as a theory to degrade and dehumanize black-skinned bodies. The truth of grace existed when Virginia passed a law in 1667 and said, It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism doth not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. The truth of grace existed when Virginia passed far more laws governing the ownership of the enslaved to define the legal status of the enslaved than their enslavers and regulate interactions between 1639 and 1705. The truth of grace existed when President Andrew Jackson passed the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and then in 1831 marched the Choctaw people out of their land without food and water where thousands died. The truth of grace existed when women throughout this country met at Seneca Falls in 1848 just to talk about what it would mean for them to have equal rights when white Christian pastors denounced their meaning. The truth of grace existed when Jim Crow laws were passed and upheld by same similar white Christian pastors and liberation was resisted and these same white Christian pastors told Dr. King, not yet. The truth of grace has always existed. So before we think that the truth of grace is an automatic given to a life of graciousness, let's remember where we've been so that we don't go there again. Because the reality is it is possible to worship God with our souls saved While our minds are still held captive by sin. Our salvation may have come and our souls may be freed. But our minds are not always liberated to the freedom we've been given in the gospel. We who have once lived in disgrace have received grace and are now called to live in it. And our faith is often fickle and our knowledge of God is dim. And so, the one thing that grace will always require of a gracious people is a deep sense of humility. That, but for the grace, there go I. I have been everything I've railed against, and I need not be any longer. Does that make sense? We are by far not a perfect church that shouldn't have to be said because, at the very least, I'm here. No, I'm for real. But we can be a grace-filled church. But if we are a grace-filled church, it will be evident by our graciousness. And that graciousness has to be concrete and tangible so that when we see the hungry, we give them something to eat. When we see the thirsty, we give them something to drink. When we see the stranger, we welcome them in. When we see oppression and injustice, we speak that truth, the power about the Christ who liberates all both the oppressed and the oppressor A grace-filled church is not evidenced by what it says or what it sings. A grace-filled church is evidenced by its witness. A witness of witness in all the hard places God invites God's people to be. And what I'm grateful for with you, Williamsburg Christian Church, is that we are learning what it means to be grace-filled. Learning. We aren't there, but by God's grace, we will get there. And this practice of Eucharist reminds us every week, it grounds us every week, That all of our ideologies and all of our antagonisms that form within us from this enemy-making machine of a culture that we sometimes experience is to be placed in submission to the Christ of the table. The gracious host who says, all are welcomed here. But, beloved, we can't remain the same here. This has to transform us to move the table out there. Does that make sense? I come with gratitude and gratefulness to a God who welcomes me just as I am, not as I should be, but then this bread and this wine, this body and this blood of Christ and its declaration of doing it within community is supposed to arise within me and stir my heart for grace so that I will not leave the table as I came, but leave a more gracious person because of the grace of God